Lord and our God, you rule and reign, and you rule and reign over us here right now. Lord, even if we don't recognize that, even if we don't say that, or, or, or even, Lord, if we're in the middle of rejecting you, um, that doesn't change the <laughs> doesn't change who you are or the position that you occupy as God and ruler over all. So, Lord, now as we come to hear from you and from your word, we pray that you would speak, that you as our, as our God would speak to us. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Christ, to open our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Lord, please soften our hearts so that we might be molded into your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question. Who is going to lead God's people? Who is going to lead God's people? It might not be. It, this, isn't, this is a rhetorical question. Thanks for being willing to jump in and answer, but that's, this one's a rhetorical question. I often start with a question that I actually expect people to respond to, so that's on me. Um, we, it's, a, it's a question that you might not, you might not think about. But throughout history, it's a, it's, a, it's a continual question. Who's going to lead God's people? One of the forms of leadership that we've seen down through the ages is kingship. A, 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 a male ruler over a, a nation, over a people, who, whose job it is to protect them and to, uh, in, to bring about good law, uh, to provide for his people. Sometimes we might think of kings or leaders as a necessary evil. You know, if only we were perfect and we could get along with one another and love one another, we wouldn't need any, any leadership. But, um, but that's not really the case. Even though, yes, if there was, if we were perfect, if we did all just get along and uh, love each other, love our neighbour as ourselves, even if we were perfect, there would still be leadership. There would still be authority structures and we see that in the bible that tells us about that before uh, the fall there was good authority structures and it tells us that even in the future in the in the new creation there will be leaders over cities and and people because you know let's let's take an example let's say in a perfect world uh, you still invented cars and they had roads somebody's got to make the call of what side of the road you're going to drive on like there's, there's decisions like that we need to make as, a, as cultures, as people, uh, to order our society. I'm sure you know what it's like when you get two people who are too agreeable trying to decide where they're going to go uh, for dinner. You know, we should go to this place. Oh, if that's what you want to go. But where do you want to go? Oh, we could go to this place. And it just goes on and on. You need somebody to make a call. And so leadership is a good thing, even in a world where people are were good to the core, you would still have good leadership. But even more so in a world where sin is rife, we cry out for good leadership. Leadership that will help us stave off the chaos that creeps in with, with sin and rebellion. So asking this leadership question is very important. Who is going to lead God's people? That, that person, this king would not just be like a figurehead like we might be tempted to think of with King Charles or people like him. We, we want a leader who has a real authority and real 
impact in the leadership of God's people. And we see this theme of kingship run throughout the Bible. It runs all the way through. And this theme of kingship might be very familiar to uh, any of you who uh, have been walking through the Psalms with us uh, at the end of last year, where we saw time and time again how the Psalms uh, flesh out this picture of kingship with God's people, messianic kingship. But even so, this morning we are looking at this kingship and you won't... um, It won't hopefully all just be the same thing that you heard a few months ago, but even even if you do know it all, it should be an encouragement and a reminder to you about God's idea of kingship. You've probably been seeing some recurring themes as we've been looking at these these topics over the last few weeks. Uh, We've been looking at the big picture of the Bible so that we can try and have the, the, the whole thing fit together. And we've been seeing these big themes that run all the way through and they're like an unfolding picture that piece by piece they're put together over the pages of Scripture. The Bible is not just isolated moralistic stories, but it's a dense web of prophecy and history and wisdom and other kinds of literature that are knit together over thousands of years to form a cohesive message from God to humanity. And each topic we look at as we've looked at this These big picture themes create shadows and patterns that all point to one man. And I hope you've been able to see in this series that how the Bible fits together. I hope you've been felt a little bit more confident, a little bit more equipped to read the the Bible, to understand God's word, to recognize the patterns that telegraph the meaning of God's word to his people. It's a little bit like uh, when you're making a puzzle and you are... You have the top of the box that shows you how it all fits together. And so then when you go to put the puzzle pieces together, you can see how they all fit because you know what the big picture looks like. Speaking of seeing these patterns emerge, when we're going to look talk through kingship, we're going to see a few themes emerge. We're going to see that God's idea of kingship is God's king ruling over God's people in God's place. And it usually follows a pattern. Now, this, this pattern is not everywhere, but we'll see elements of this pattern arise all over the place. You have a chosen king who is anointed by God. He then goes out and accomplishes feats, great works, accomplishments. And then that, that king is, an, is coronated, like he's crowned and, and installed as king. And then that king is meant to rule in accordance with God's law, bring God's way into reality in a place. You won't see this pattern all the time, especially with kings that just get a flying mention, but it's a pattern that we will see through, to varying degrees through biblical history. So where do we start to look for this pattern? Surprise, surprise, we're going to start in the beginning. In the beginning... Adam was the first king, and I'm I'm using the language of proto-king. He was never called a king, but he was installed as a leader over God's creation. He was given a dominion mandate. He was made in the image of God, and he was was like a vassal king. You know, he was a king, a leader, a ruler under God. He was to remain loyal to God as he discharged his duty of leadership. Now, Genesis 2 makes it clear that Adam had primary responsibility in the task, 
but also that, that his wife Eve was to play a vital role in supporting this mission. Adam was to rule over God's creation, made by God, and he was breathed into by God's Spirit to make him alive. It was an anointing of sorts. But he, along with Eve, undermined their position and brought sin into the world and fundamentally uh, tripped themselves up so that they were not able to fulfill their role, fulfill their duty, fulfill their responsibilities before the Lord. So this first proto-king kind of failed in his duty. And then kingship takes a bit of a back seat. It's not really an issue in the first five books of the Bible, but we do start to see hints and patterns arising in the first five books, the Torah, the law. After the fall, God chooses one family to start his plan of redemption for humanity. He starts this plan with one family who are God's people. And so there's a succession of patriarchs who lead this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And this patriarchal leadership structure works fine in this small kind of tribal setup of, of one family. But as generation follows generations, as they grew and grew and they turned from kind of one family into 12 tribes, the idea of just setting up one of the patriarchs to lead God's people starts to not make as much sense. So the question then becomes, who is going to lead God's people? Intriguingly, in this time of patriarchy, uh, the, 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 the patriarchs, we have a strange king appear on the scene. His presence is so brief and so mysterious. But he's a figure to whom the patriarchs give deference. Abraham gives deference to this strange king called Melchizedek, king of Salem. Let me just read the, the little incident where he shows up. After his, uh, this is Abraham, after Abraham's return from the defeat of Ch- Cheddar, so try this one out, Chedorloma, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This strange king appears and Abraham uh, goes to him and he is blessed by him. And Abraham kind of gives this voluntary tax. It's like, have a tenth of everything. This strange king, Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. And then he's also called king of Salem, which literally means king of peace. This king of righteousness and king of peace appears on the scene and God's people are honouring him. Although the text is not explicit, many people think that Salem was the precursor to Jerusalem, that this king was a ruler over the city that would one day become the capital of the people of God. So, is this the guy who should reign over God's people? This king of righteousness, this, this king of peace who rules in Salem? Should this be the guy who leads God's people? Well, no. As soon as this is all we get from him in in the Torah, he appears and Melchizedek is gone. As fast as he was there, 
he's disappeared into the pages of history. So who will lead God's people? After the patriarchs, God raised up prophetic leaders like Moses and Joshua to lead God's people. But they were never like royalty. They were never installed as kings. They, they didn't establish dynasties. And so as Moses died, you know, the question is, well, who will lead after Moses? And then as Moses died, the question is, sorry, as, as Joshua dies, the question is, who will lead after him? God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Sinai, where God entered into a covenant with his people Israel, and he essentially offered to be their king, you know, that he would go with them, he would protect them, he would lead them. And he did go with them as they wandered the desert and as they came to the promised land. Yet God knew that even though he was their true ultimate king, eventually the people would ask for an earthly king to be their leader. So knowing this in advance, God set some ground rules. You can read them in Deuteronomy, but I'll just read a couple parts of it. God set some ground rules for when they wanted a king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So, so this king that they could have, when, they, when the time came, they could have a king, but it needed to be a king that God chose, a leader over God's people that God chose, and not somebody who was an enemy of God, not a foreigner. This is, they're, not, they're not being racist, but they're saying that, that somebody who's outside of God's people should, has no business being a leader over God's people. Now, what was this king to do? Well, one of the things that the king was required to do was to write for himself a copy of the book a book, sorry, write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And this copy shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom." He and his children in Israel. So God's, the proper king over God's people is going to bring in God's law. And to make sure that that's what happened, he was to create a copy. He was to copy out God's law and to have a personal copy with him. So he, they didn't just have printing presses and he, and he wasn't allowed to just order somebody else to make a copy for him. He had to copy it out himself and to have it with him so that he could follow God's law all the days of his life as he ruled. And so that he didn't become proud. So he would be humble leader over God's people. This was the kind of king that God's people needed. One who would stick to what God said. But even so, there was no king for a time. Even though God gave this rule, there was no king for a time with the people of Israel. They had... Instead, when they arrived in the promised land, there was a succession of kind of warlords that rose up and they would lead God's people for a time. Normally what would happen is one of these warlords, one of these judges, would be raised up by God to deliver the people from whatever oppression they were facing. And then the warlord would act as something like a governor. He was never really a king over the whole nation, but he would be an arbiter, a governor for a time, and then he would die. And then next time they needed 
deliverance, God would raise up another judge. But there was one guy who thought that he could take it upon himself to make himself king. You might remember the story of Gideon. Now, and Gideon had 70 sons. Now, after, after Gideon had reigned as a judge and delivered Israel, they tried to make him king, but he said, no, I won't be king over you. Good. But then his son, Abimelech, when Gideon died, said, ah, now's my opportunity. I will become king of Israel. So he went and talked to some of the, the, the community leaders and tried to tee it up that he would become the king. And then he went and slaughtered his 70 siblings so that there was no contenders for the throne. He installed himself as king. He was not chosen by God. He put himself in power. But it wasn't to last. God took him out a couple of years later. In God's providence, a woman dropped a millstone on his head and then um, it wounded him terribly. He knew he was a goner. And so then he asked his, uh, his armour bearer, like a, a, a young boy, to uh, take him out, to finish him off. So here was this guy who was meant to be this mighty warrior king who was taken out by a woman dropping a rock on his head and a boy stabbing him with his own sword. He would end in disgrace and dishonour. So we kept having this succession of judges and the last judge is Samuel. And Samuel was a really good bloke for the most part, except he didn't discipline his sons. When he was old, people thought, well, Samuel's been great and he's about to die, but we don't want anything to do with his sons. His sons were, uh, um, they took bribes and they perverted justice. So he said, we don't want Samuel's sons to be leader over us. And they said, now is time to invoke that clause in God's law about a king. We want a king. But not because they wanted godly leadership. They wanted a king because all their neighbouring nations had kings and they said, we want one like that. We want to be like them. Not, we want to be more like God and we want to follow God more faithfully. We want to be like the nations around us that keep trampling us and keep oppressing us. I don't know about you, but that's not the model that I would want to take on. But at least they were going to do it by going about it in the right way this time. And Samuel initially was... was uh, recalcitrant he didn't want to put in a king but God said to Samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them so God knew that their motives were badly placed but he allowed them to choose this path and experience its consequences and they came to God and said God who should be our king and God chose a man named Saul He's the kind of guy that, you, that, you, that looked like a king. He was tall, he was you know, broad-shouldered, he looked the part. This guy looked like he should be king. Never mind the fact that when he was being anointed as king, he was hiding in the baggage uh, department and uh, trying to s sneak off. But he was pulled out and they made him king. And he looked apart surely this is the right kind of guy to lead God's people he, he fit the bill in many respects he followed the pattern he was chosen by God he was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit 
And then he went out and did great feats. He had made great accomplishments. Then they coronated him as king and he ruled. But he didn't bring in God's law. He didn't rule in accordance with God's ways. He did whatever was expedient for him in the moment. Was it expedient for him to follow God's rules? I'll do that now. Now there's a bit of a situation where it's a bit hard. I'll just do it my own way. And so God rejected Saul and overthrew him. He looked the part of a king, but his heart was not with God. So who's going to lead God's people? Who's going to lead God's people? God raised up David in Saul's place. But David didn't look the part of a king. He was a pretty boy. In the, in, I'm using that in a little bit of a disparaging sense. Like uh, he, he, um, he was a shepherd. He was the youngest son of a, a family that was just in a random town called Bethlehem. Yet this kid... God knew and chose as king. He chose David as king. And David fit the bill. He did what a king was meant to do. He was chosen by God. God poured out his Holy Spirit on him. And then he went out and did mighty feats, including slaying the giant Goliath, the enemy of God's people. And after that, he was coronated, uh, sorry, the, uh, he was, yeah, he, after coronation, he was installed as king and he lived and ruled in accordance with God's law. He was devoted to the Lord. He would say things in the Psalms like, on your law, I meditate day and night. His heart was given over to the Lord. Now, he still made mistakes. He still messed up, but he was... Uh, his heart was given over to the Lord. He was loyal to the Lord, even though he failed in many respects. He was not disowned and overthrown like Saul, not because he was less deserving of punishment, but because the Lord was gracious to him as one who belonged to him. There were temporal consequences for his sin, but God took away his sin, his guilt. And David would continue to rule and bring in a golden age for Israel. And despite his flaws, David was chosen by God to be the father of a great dynasty of kings. And not just a historically significant dynasty, like we talk about the Tudors or we talk about the Ming dynasty. Not just historically significant, but an eternal dynasty. David would be the father of kings forever. God promises, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord promised that the kingship of his people would eternally belong to David's lineage. And this is great news in many respects. Here is this king who's devoted to God. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's he's this anointed king who wins battles for God's people. And now God is saying, this guy is going to father a house that will last forever and lead God's people. Surely this is what they've been waiting for and looking for and needing to help God's people to grow and to, and to prosper and to be safe. Surely, after the train wreck of Saul and Abimelech before him, surely this is what it's going to be like from now on. If this is what a good king is, we'll have more of this. David was a great king, but he was still a man and he died. So who will lead in his stead? 
Who comes next? Well, Solomon comes next. David was succeeded by Solomon. Initially, things looked really good for Solomon. He's following in his father's footsteps. He dedicates himself to building a temple for God. His deepest desires were for, uh, not for territorial expansion or great wealth or power. Instead, he asked God, when God said, what can I give you? He said, please give me wisdom so I can govern your people better. That's the kind of king that you want. It seems like things were looking up for, for the people of Israel. We've got a guy like his father. He wants to serve God. He wants to lead his people well. He wants God to be worshipped faithfully at his temple. But... And there's always a but, isn't there? It wasn't to last. Because Solomon didn't stick it out. He didn't remain faithful. He, he indulged himself in a huge harem and started worshipping other gods. His heart wandered from the Lord. It was very disappointing. This, this guy who was a son of David by blood and initially looked like he was, a, he was the right kind of copy son of David, he didn't have his father's steadfast loyalty and so Solomon becomes this big question mark in the scriptures sometimes the the Bible is very clear about you know if somebody ends up being faithful to the Lord or or, or an enemy of God whether or not they're a, a believer or or a non-believer but Solomon's this big question mark he, he he wrote big parts of the scripture you know Proverbs and Song of Solomon and and some of the Psalms but there's this big question mark over, was this guy, the wisdom that he had from the Lord, was that enough? Did he, was he really faithful? Did he repent of the sins that he committed? But this ambiguity starts a trend in the succession of, of David's descendants that continues on, where we start a downward spiral. The books of Kings and Chronicles are characterized by a succession of kings in the north and the south um, that rebel against God's law. Because after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. The one kingdom of God's people was divided into two kingdoms. One under God's chosen leader, the Davidic line, and one kingdom that said, no, nah, we're going to do our own thing and chose their own kings. The north rebelled and set up their own system. And so we have this succession of kings, kings that are uh, not chosen by God. We've got kings that don't live in accordance with God's law. And so as you read through, I think it's particularly Chronicles, you get that resounding statement of this guy did evil in the sight of the Lord and he died. These continual uh, series of kings that, that failed God's people and who rebelled against God. And occasionally there's a bright light, like King Josiah, a guy who discovers the book of God's law. God's law had been so rejected that it was a, like a, a book hidden under a chair somewhere in the temple and they didn't even know it was there. And so they pulled out, they discovered the, the, the book of the law and Josiah's like, we've got to start doing this. We've got to start living in accordance with the way that God has called us to live. And so Josiah is this little bright light in an otherwise, uh, you know, swirling well of darkness so the people of God continually had this succession of kings that failed them and although the line continued in David's line eventually the kingship would be kind of suspended as the people of Israel were sent into exile for their sins 
God's people were left yearning for good king, and not only a good king, but a return to God's place, the place where God was supposed to have given them as the promised land. And although they got to return to the land after a while, the kingship was never really reinstated. There was a guy, Zerubbabel, who was a governor, who was of David's line, but he was never really installed as king. And then God's people were continually under the yoke of foreign powers. They were, they were under Babylon first and then under the Persians and then there were the Greeks and then the Greek states that kind of came after Alexander the Great and then they were under the thumb of Rome. They were a people who had no godly king. They were left yearning. Who's going to lead God's people? And they were left wondering, has God's promise failed? God promised that a king from David's line would sit on the throne forever. So where is this promised king? After many, many years of waiting, in David's town called Bethlehem, there was a child born, a child who was his, David's descendant. His name was Joshua. If you're using the Hebrew, or in our Greek version, we would say Jesus. There was a boy born in David's town to descendants of David. And this boy was not only a son of David, but he was the son of God. Here was one who would be the king to come. But he didn't look like a king. Born to a poor family. Born uh, and, and, and wrapped in swaddling cloths and put in an in animal food trough because they didn't have a house to stay in. Here was a king born who didn't look like a king from the outset. He didn't, he didn't look the part. There was nothing, as he grew up, there was nothing about his features that kind of set him apart, that, that made him look noble. But this guy would be the guy who would fulfill all of their needs, all of the pictures, all of the shadows that came beforehand. Here was one who was chosen by God. Here was one who was anointed by his Holy Spirit. And, and so much so that they actually saw a vision of it. When he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven like a dove and rested on him. Here was one who accomplished mighty feats. He went, he walked around Palestine casting out demons. He went and did battle with Satan in the desert. He went and taught God's people God's law. And he went and overthrew Satan, sin and death. He delivered God's people from their enemies. And then he ascended to God's right hand after defeating Satan, sin and death by giving his own life as a sacrifice to make an atonement for sin. He then rose from the dead and then he was raised to the right hand of the Father where he sits as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning over God's people. But this was not a kingdom like they were expecting. The people of God were expecting this guy is going to show up and he's going to kick the Romans out and we're going to, you know, Re kind of set up the, the nation of Israel. We're going to have a new golden age. But Jesus came and he came and 
to create a kingdom that was bigger than they could even imagine. A kingdom of God that was not limited by the boundaries of Israel, but a kingdom that would spread across the earth and bring in and create citizens of people who would never have any hope of hearing about God or belonging to God's people. He had to install a kingdom that was not of this world. And you see that in the way when Jesus talks to Pilate just before he's executed. Pilate's questioning him, you're, if you're a king, you know, what, you know where's, your, where's your kingdom? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. So Jesus is this new king. Jesus is the king of God's people who will rule and reign. And now we have this, this picture fulfilled because God says, I will be your king. But he also says, you can install a man as king. So what do we end up with in Jesus? We have the God-man as their king. God would be their ruler and their leader forever. Now this King Jesus, when he came the first time, he came humbly. He came looking very ordinary and unassuming. But as we read before from Revelation, one day the might and power and the glory of Jesus as the God King will be revealed more fully and so Revelation paints a picture of what this would look like. It paints a picture of a, a final battle where God's enemies are finally and fully overthrown. John tells us of the vision that he's given. I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. So in the ancient world, horses were for like the nobles or the leaders, the kings. So here we have a white horse. The one who's sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns. On his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the picture of the God King of Israel, the one who will rule and reign forever the one who will rule God's people in God's place. This is the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who brings in God's law and the one who is of the line of David. Jesus is the king that the scriptures point to and show us. He is the king not only in the sense of, uh, you know, in an ancient mindset of thinking about a king, but he is our king here today. And the thing about kings is, it doesn't matter whether or not you think that they should be king. Kings are either kings or not. They either have authority or they don't. Jesus has authority over us right now, even if we aren't willing to recognize it. And so as Christians, sometimes we will say, I've made Jesus Lord over my life. And I understand what we're trying to say. We're trying to say, I, I submitted myself to Christ. But the fact is that Jesus was already Lord over your life. You just need to recognize it. So I encourage you today, that if you haven't recognized that yet, if you haven't seen it, now is an opportunity. Now is an opportunity to say Jesus is Lord. 
to recognise the reality of what is already in operation. And I understand that that can be difficult. You might have some stuff to work through. (laughs) What is the implications of this? But I would love to see you come to know Jesus as King, the King that he already is. But because Jesus is King, that means that everything that we do should be beholden to him. That means that, as we read in Psalm 2, every king is really a king under Jesus. And every leader in this country, in around the world, every leader in, in, in cities, every leader in families, every leader in churches needs to submit themselves to God and to, to Jesus as king. Everything that, that we do should be under his um, oversight, should be under his leadership. Somebody famously said, there is not one inch in this whole universe that does not testify that, uh, sorry, there is not one inch in this whole world that Jesus is not king over. He's king over absolutely everything. And he is reclaiming his kingship, so to speak. Everything will become submitted to him. But we are in that time, we're in that age where, where the message is going out, Jesus is king, submit yourself to him. We're in that time where this good news, this gospel is going out and all people everywhere are being called to repent and to kneel before Jesus. But one day the day will come when the time of grace, of of opportunity, of God's patience and waiting will come to an end and God will fully and finally bring in his reign. And all those who still stand against him will lose. So... As you go out now, go out as people of the risen King Jesus. Go out as people who who are loyal to him, who belong to him. Go out as people who are taught by him how to follow God's law. Like Melchizedek, 